Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinus. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Polycast, episode 384. I am your host, Canis Albinus, from a very cold United States Midwest. And I am joined with our regular co-hosts, Makalua. <laughs> That's a very soggy Texas. Also too warm and humid. Ick. And Mega Bears fan. It is neither cold nor soggy in Las Vegas. And the Mian team is out this week. And your hockey team's going to the next round. In Vegas, I mean. Yeah. It's like yeah. if you give the seventh best player on every team in the league to the team, they somehow do okay. Or is that how they did it, or was it a higher number no. than that? Oh, no, no, no. It was way higher than that. This was like a proper kind of a draft thing, and people had to protect some of their p- good people from getting picked and plucked off to be that team. So, no, it's a normal team. And they did very, 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 very good their first season. So, Yeah, I think uh, what you're thinking of, Canis, is what the NFL did with its expansion draft when the uh, Browns re-entered the league back in like the late 90s or early 2000s. And they were crap for years because they just got all the other teams' rejects. But they were still crap. Well, I mean, they are the Browns, so... They were extra crappy those first few years. Now they're their own special flavor, you know, customized flavor of crap instead of generic crap that the the league gave them. So maybe the NHL saw that and learned lessons from the NFL. The the NFL provides lots and lots of examples of how not to do things in professional sports. Well, according to Games or PC Games N, which I assume is a news site of some sort or maybe a news blog site, Civilization developers Firaxis have at least two or three games in the pipeline for announcement later this year. Uh, they said several, which implies more than two. But then again, it is American marketing, so who knows for sure. Several. We have three in development, because that's more than two. Well, and combined with the uh, other news that we'll be talking about later, I I would not be surprised if this is an announcement of uh, Civ 7 as one of these games. Or whatever comes in between Civ 7 and Civ 6. Yeah, there's still that as a possibility. Maybe another XCOM game. Might be one of them. The XCOM team is a different team. They don't work at the same... They're not the same developers. They're just both at Firaxis. Oh, I thought this... I thought this was just Firaxis as a studio was working on several games, so I had assumed that included the XCOM people. Yes. And they've said something about a new intellectual property of some kind. So Civ, an XCOM 3, and then something brand new? Yeah, something like that. Um, it said, back in 2018, we learned that they're working on a new IP. Is uh, XCOM still getting, or XCOM 2 still getting expansions? No. When was the last XCOM 2 expansion? I feel like I it wasn't it, that long ago. I think it was War of the Chosen. Yeah, that sounds correct to me. And that was quite a while ago. Oh, you know, let's ask the Steam store. <laughs> ask the Steam store. Well, I haven't seen any news about uh, 2K acquiring the naming rights to Alpha Centauri, so unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be one. <laughs> uh, that's going to be one of these games. That would be nice, but no. Yeah. One, and once again, we can take this opportunity to remind EA: What the hell are you doing? Why are you sitting on this IP and doing nothing with it? They're not called evil acquisitions for nothing. 
Yeah, I know, right? Well, I don't know. With uh, all the new 4X games coming out, maybe uh, EA will finally be like, hey, I guess there's money in this genre. Like, hey, maybe, maybe, just maybe. Yeah, Let's wait and see if they're any good. They're probably waiting to find out or, or to see how uh, some other company aggressively monetizes it before they bother making a game. Yeah, but it was late 2018 for War of the Chosen, so yeah, it's been a while since they put any XCOM stuff out. Oh, dang, that long, huh? I could have swore there was something more recent than that. Oh, there was Chimera Squad. Yeah, the Chimera, Which was a yeah. standalone game. Ah, uh, that's yeah. probably what I was thinking of. That was a Figures, console yeah. version, right? It was on Steam, too. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never got around to playing XCOM, so I am out of the loop on that game. I played the first XCOM. It was pretty good. I played the like classic original XCOM back in the day uh, on like what Windows 98 or whatever the heck that was on, but I haven't played any of the modern ones. Did you play Terror from the Deep? I do not recall. I borrowed my cousin's copy of the game, and I don't recall if it came with the expansions or not. That was a, that was XCOM 2. Oh, I don't remember which. I think I played the first one. Arrow from the Deep is notorious as extremely hard. I remember the first one being pretty hard, too. But then again, you know, I was considerably younger and less experienced of a, a strategy gamer when I played it. So, well, unless I'm remembering wrong, there was some bug with the settings where you were where in the first game. You were always getting an easier level, even if you picked a harder level. So when they fix that for XCOM 2 and you play Terror from the Deep, everybody's like, oh, God, this is hard. It was meant to be harder than it was. And everybody and it was still hard even when it was easy. <laughs> That's an amusing bug. Yep. So, yeah, we have no idea what these new games are going to be. I guess uh, our listeners are just going to have to stay tuned. And then on a somewhat related note, uh, Firaxis also posted some uh, a topic on Civ Fanatics and I think also on Reddit. And I think there was also a YouTube video to accompany all of it uh, saying thank you for, from Firaxis. Uh, the original post was by Anton Stranger, who I believe is now the lead designer for the game since uh, for I think both the expansions, right? And the New Frontiers Pass? Yes. Uh just basically saying thank you to the fans for receiving the uh, game and its expansions and the New Frontiers Pass uh, very warmly. Uh, and um, then that was followed up by many other members of the development and production team also saying their thank- uh, personalized thank yous. Yeah, like uh, something like 15, 20, 30 people did this. Yeah, quite a few. Uh, and I think they and... ranged from programmers to artists to musicians, so it ran the gamut of uh, different um, groups of uh, staff. I think it was the entire staff that did it. Oh, was it the entire staff? Okay. The entire staff of the Firax, of the Civilization side. Because on Symphonetics, it runs over more than two or th- than two pages. Almost. I'm I'm on the third page scrolling to see how many there are. You can tell how tell which ones they are because they all have one message each. Which is perfectly understandable because I think they all made their accounts this week that particular week. So what is the takeaway from this? Well, I imagine if the developers are saying thank you for playing the game, uh I kind of feel like this is also their way of saying perhaps maybe this is it for Civilization VI. Uh, thank you and goodbye. I don't know if uh, you two took that same kind of takeaway from it. Feels like it, because there's so many, and having like the whole team come in and do it. It's like, we're done with this for now. Maybe they're about to go start work on Civ Seven and things, but <clears throat> it's, also, it's also very nice, you know, because you normally developers don't come out and thank you quite so much, or maybe only one or two highlight people from it thank you not the whole staff comes in kind of a thing yeah it's like uh the what i call the curtain call bow or whatever at the end of a Mm -hmm. stage play where everybody 
that was in the play comes out and gives a bow and people throw flowers at them and, you know, good stuff. But yeah, you're right. I haven't, I don't ever remember seeing anything like this for uh, any of the other games that I play. I've never seen anything quite like it, which it was impressive to me because even Fraxis hasn't been, oh, hasn't always been as as um, forthcoming about that kind of thing. So. Yeah, I mean, there's even, always the, the corporate aspect where, you know, what they can and cannot say has to be, you know, approved and stuff like that. So. I wonder yeah. if this is. Uh, I was just going to say, I wonder if this is going to be a, a thing going forward with uh, 2K games, or if this is just a Firaxis-specific thing. I don't think I've seen 2K ever do it before, but then again, I've never been on a 2K NBA thing, so who knows? Yeah, and it's earlier on when we were doing this podcast in the first few years, but we had more interaction with them, but when 2K took over, it was a lot less because you had to filter through two or three people to see if it's okay for them to do things. You know, so maybe, maybe, to, maybe they're letting up on them just a little bit, you know, letting them maybe going forward, they're going to let them interact more with us as the fan base. But we, but you know, still, we've never seen anything like that before this curtain call type of thing, which I guess for a long running series, it makes more sense. It's like, okay, this, this, this run, this run of the show is over. We're going to start a new run sometime soon and you'll find out about it. It's probably because that it was one of the things to notice is E3 is coming up. So we're probably going to find out about at least one of the things next month. Oh, yeah. E3. Yeah, forgot that happens. <laughs> it didn't happen last year, so... Not even a virtual one? I don't think there was a virtual one last year that was yeah. worth anything. Well, I yeah. remember, like, I think even before the pandemic, like in 2018 or 2019, like, Sony, like, stopped showing up to E3 and just had their own, like, virtual press conferences that they organized themselves that was, like, the week after E3 or the week before E3 or something like that. So even, like, the major console companies are like, eh, we don't care so much about E3 anymore. I was gonna say, Nintendo hasn't attended E3 for a while. Yeah, it's like Sony, Nintendo, and I think even Microsoft at this point host their own things either the same week or, like, the week after, but also still adjacent to it so everybody can come and stay and do it the whole week yeah i think they still send some people to e3 to do the little press conferences but they kind of like expect people to go to their own uh events to see all the good stuff the e3 is more like a teaser i approve of it being this way because e3 is just annoying yeah, I, I agree. Lots and lots of hype for games that are not really going to be all that good. Oh, hooray, another Assassin's Creed. Oh, hooray, another Call of Duty. Ironically enough, those games are actually better than a lot of the other stuff that they show. Hmm. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, it's just the, the games that are shown off just don't wow me as much as they used to like 10 years ago. Maybe well, that's just everything. Everything is always the same. It's always the same crap and new new uh, pictures, and there's nothing ever anything really interesting. Same gameplay, new package. Yeah, like, I keep feeling like, is this just me being, like, old and, and jaded and just not liking the things that the young kids are doing, or is it that it's just worse than it used to be? It's more corporate than it used to be, so there's less good stuff that's for sure yeah, yeah i was gonna say it's not like e3 and stuff was in the 90s and the in the 2000s where it was you found it because you, you didn't find out the things as easily through the internet you still mostly had magazines up to a certain point so when you got to see e3 things or they talked about e3 things you saw stuff you weren't expecting you didn't know this game was coming out and it was yeah it was a lot less corporate yeah now pretty much everything just gets leaked like a month before E3 anyway. So we already know everything yeah. that's coming out. We've already probably seen the trailers. Nobody, nobody's very good at keeping their leaks in or waiting literally until E3 to drop their trailer. So they get proper hype like they used to. And then or there's, you, or, or, or you go have ahead. the, yes. Yeah, or you have that no, moment like when, um, um, when it was Xbox versus Sony, yeah, Xbox is going to sell for this month, and the Sony conference is just like two ninety nine instead of whatever price it was Xbox was. Yeah, you, know, you don't have those moments anymore. Yeah, that wasn't even that long ago. It was just 
Never it seems like it was just yesterday that, that happened, but it's changed so much even since I started watching it in the mid 2010. Because last year they are not last year, the year before they were doing those filmed, those canned uh, um, multiplayer sessions where it was obvious that they were filmed and um, scripted because nobody in multiplayer ever talks that way. But they were showing it off like it was, and they I can't imagine they were expecting anyone to be like, well, it's obviously fake. What the heck are you doing? Yeah, that's been a, a big problem with E3 for many years, is just how disingenuous a lot of what they show is. And this goes all the way back at least to, like, what was it, Killzone 2 on the for the PS3, where they said it was in-game footage, and they were just, like, completely lying, and when the game came out, like, everyone was all disappointed, and then we had, like, Aliens Colonial Marines, where, again, they showed stuff that was just not at all representative of what the actual game was gonna look like, so, yeah, it's 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 also, in addition to just not being impressed by the stuff, it's hard to take anything that you see seriously. Well, that was happening all the way back in the 90s, is they would show canned demo type of things, it was like or a demo build of the game, and they would specifically only go through certain parts, but not to show the bugs in the game that were still there. And then you would buy it, and it would be so buggy. It was just like, what? Well, but that could also be attributed to just the game is still in development, right? So you're not going to show the parts of the game that are oh. not finished yet. Some, sometimes yes, but sometimes no. They were hyping, like, yeah, this is real gameplay, and this is not what it was at all. They cobbled the better parts, the better working parts of the game together to make you think it was going to be this hype thing, and then... What was it somebody brought up recently? Daikatana. Because they made that look it was going to be this epic, awesome game, and it turned out to be a buggy piece of poop. Yeah, well, that definitely happens. That's always happened. Ah, the good old days. Or as we used to call them, oh, the bad old days. Why are we putting up with this days? Well, speaking of things being buggy... <laughs> crashes, 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 more crashes, crashes. Hey, it's not the launcher. This time, at least. Uh, no, no, um, no, no, no. That's not what we're the, what the what the topic says, though. What? No. Oh, the, somebody did ask to bypass the. The launcher is the is a problem, but it's not what was causing the the crashes in this thread. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Pardon me. Launcher is still a problem as it is, but it's not the problem today. Uh, th- yeah, Thunder Lizard Two was asking, was anybody else having frequent crashes since the last patch? She got it crashes while loading and frequently while playing you know of course everybody has mods these things it was windows 10 no mods didn't bypass the launcher so he's playing it stock vanilla i believe there was a microsoft update that needed yes no 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 what happened was microsoft released an update that broke video game in early april and it was kb5001330 and they uh, uh, released a hotfix at the end of the month, but the update was uninstallable, or, un, or not uninstallable, and it basically caused a lot of stuff that used graphics cards to just not work. Well, at least this one didn't, like, delete users' entire My Documents folders. Yeah. Whoa. Oh, did you not know hear about that, Mackie? That was I like, didn't hear about that one. Oh no, it was like uh was it in was it twenty twenty? Was it last year, Canis? Do you remember? I don't remember the specifics. I just remember that it happened and it was a big deal. Yeah, it, it was it was last year, the year before, and it wasn't actually Microsoft, so you know, make that clear. It was I, I wanna say it was either I think an NVIDIA driver that got pushed to people's computers through Windows updates. So it was a third-party update, but somehow, if for people who had certain hardware in their computers, it deleted their entire My Documents folder. Like, didn't send it to the trash, just deleted it. Everything was gone. Unrecoverable. Ooh. Yeah. Ah. Yeah, That's why I don't my... keep stuff. That's why I don't keep stuff in the My Documents folder. Yeah, yeah it, I, I, my... it, it's also why a lot of corporations, like now, like large corporations have policies in place where they, they put in like special Windows update policies where they're always like a month behind because they want to make sure that a new Windows update isn't going to like completely destroy their ability to, uh, 
for their employees to do work. Like, that's how bad Windows Update has become. Like, there is not a, there is a non-zero chance that it will completely foobar your computer. Well, am I glad I have a tendency to put that off for a while? <laughs> yeah, I think the only way to do that, though, is to have some kind of, like, corporate, uh, like, enterprise version of Windows. Like, regular users, like, if, if Windows says it's time for an update, like, there are times where it forces you to update and you can't even delay it. And it is I, so frustrating. I've always been able to delay it by just saying, remind me in seven days. Yeah. But if you if you don't use your computer for one day and that comes up, it will do it automatically. Yeah, I think there's still, though, some like high priority security updates that you cannot uh, delay. And it, it just happens uh, whether you let it or not. But I, I could be wrong about that. Depending on what kind of updates they are, that might yeah. be a bad thing. Critical security updates, yeah, that's okay, but there are other updates like this, or a third-party update like that. Oh, wow. Yeah, and when what was crazy about that one in particular was because it was from a third-party, like, chip manufacturer, like, people were asking, like, how the heck is it that a third-party even has access to do this? Like, that seems like it's just a huge security, like, vulnerability. Like, how have hackers mm-hmm. not figured that out yet and and been able to take advantage of it? I mean, I guess maybe they they can't if they can't push updates through through Windows Update. Like maybe that's the thing that allows it to happen. And obviously, Microsoft is not uh, sending updates to people from hackers. Uh, but like, yeah, but you, you, you have to think that the hardware manufacturers are what they would think of as trusted sources. But still, like, I, like I just can't believe that they would have access to do something like that without you, user permission. You know. Yeah, it's like, yeah, how is there not a process at Microsoft to check over the, somebody to check over the updates before it goes live? Well, I'm sure they do. But like I said, this only happened with people who had certain hardware, like it was like a certain graphics card. And it was like only one model of graphics card or one or two models of of graphics card. So, you know, obviously, Microsoft can do sanity checking, but they cannot possibly check every possible... Uh, not only not every possible piece of hardware, but every possible permutation of hardware. You know, you've got a motherboard from one brand and a graphics card from another brand and a CPU from another brand and RAM chips from another brand. And, you know, it's just a completely unique environment. And this is, you know, why Apple insists on doing everything like in these closed systems. Uh, so it's easier. They can test things and have more stable software that doesn't run these risks. But then, of course, the downside to that is the user doesn't have any control over their own system. So, give and take. Personally, I like being able to build a computer to whatever specs I want it to be, with whatever hardware I want. But, you know, you do that, and this is a risky run. Some people just want a computer box that works. On a a somewhat related note to this as well, I saw an article, I want to say like a week or two ago, I don't know how old it is, uh, but it might have been on Reddit, so I don't know how old the actual update was, but... I think it was Apple pushed an update to like MacBooks or iPads or something like that, where they specifically had a fix for Civilization Six. And I wish I had the link to the article, but yeah, it was a, a patch note from Apple specifically to fix an issue with Civ Six, and they specifically cited wow. Civilization Six in the patch notes. I wish I could. I wish I remembered where I where I saw that and still had the link to it. I should have posted it for us to to look at. But I didn't think of it at the time. Somebody in the corporate office really loves Civ, apparently. Yeah, apparently. Who's the Who's the CEO of Apple now? I keep forgetting his name. Is it Tim Cook? I think it's Tim Cook. Yeah, maybe Tim Cook is a big Civ fan. Who knows? Actually, hasn't Tim Cook like come out before, like just showing absolute disdain for video games as a medium? That would not surprise me. So probably not a big Civ fan. Yeah, going back to the crashing, what was the fix to bypass the launcher again? The fix was that Windows fixed it eventually. Ah. And also bypass the launcher because always. Yes. Make sure you're for once, actually make sure you're fully updated for Microsoft and bypass the launcher just because the launcher sucks. Yeah. Also disable your mods. Uh, yeah, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Make sure your mods are also updated to the latest version of Civ. Yeah, that sucks that there was not a 
fix for the users, and we actually did have to wait for patches from uh, third-party sources. That's always really frustrating, because you never know if a fix is even going to come. Especially if it is something that's caused by, uh, you know, Microsoft instead of a bug that was introduced by Firaxis or 2K or whatever. Yeah. Because they might be dependent on Microsoft to give them a fix. I can't imagine how Microsoft would have been so stupid as to screw up NVIDIA drivers. I don't know. (laughs) You'd think, like, yeah, one one of the two biggest graphics and chipset developers, uh, they'd, uh, you know, they would thoroughly test that stuff. But I guess not. Alright, so for those who have been able to actually play Civilization VI, and it hasn't been crashing due to annoying Windows updates, there was a poll posted by user Stillgar08 on Civ Fanatics uh, asking, always on game modes, question mark, which is probably not what you think it is, because for those of you who are having very unpleasant flashbacks to SimCity 2013, uh, this is actually about the new game modes that were added by New Frontiers patch and not a poll about whether or not you approve of games being always online, which was uh, my first knee-jerk reaction when I saw the title of this thread. Uh, The user is just asking uh, which of the new Frontiers Pass game modes you always leave on whenever you're playing a new game of Civilization VI. And um, I actually found that the two most popular ones in the poll are the same two that I prefer, which are Barbarian Clans and Monopolies and Corporations, with uh, Secret Societies coming in at third place. They're not exclusive either. You can vote for multiple. Oh, okay, yeah. So that uh, definitely will um, affect the outcome. But yeah, considering that they are, you know, modular and the game modes themselves are not mutually exclusive, I, the poll should also not be mutually exclusive because people are going right. to play multiple. And and like I said, I personally, I like Monopolies and Corporations and Barbarian Clans as well. Uh, I have a slight preference for the Barbarian Clans game mode, especially when I, when I first started playing it, I was a little bit on the fence because I guess there was a bug or something where... A new barbarian outposts weren't spawning after, like, they started turning into city-states. So I would kill the barbarian outposts in, like, the beginning of the game in the ancient classical medieval era, and then the remaining ones would turn into city-states, and then no new barbarian outposts would spawn for the rest of the game. So my poor little caravels were going out, and there were no barbarian caravels for them to deal with. There were no barbarians in any of the unclaimed land or the little islands out in the middle of the ocean, and that was a bummer. And I wasn't sure if that was just, like, a technical limitation because they already have too many city-states in the game and maybe they don't spawn new barbarians if they're already full on city-states. But I I think I saw something in a recent patch note saying that they fixed that. So supposedly that is not happening anymore, but I haven't played a game into uh, the later half of the game since that patch was released. So that will definitely improve my opinion of Barbarian Clans, which was a mode that I already liked. They have indeed fixed that bug. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, in the multiplayer game on Saturday, we have seen them still spawning and still having city-states form when we get deeper into the game, so. Awesome. Yeah, before I think it was around Medieval, where it seemed to be starting to cut off, but now it's all the way through, and sometimes, like, you had to pop up there, really? Yeah, honestly, in my opinion, the Barbarian's Clan thing with, you know, maybe a little bit of extra uh, um, development, uh, could have been the basis of a whole expansion, as far as I'm concerned. I think it's perfect the way it is. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not saying that it would, the expansion would have to be nothing but barbarian clans, but, you know, I could throw in a few other things as well, and, and I think you've got the, the framework for a pretty decent new expansion. I mean, barbarians turning into city-states is something that fans have been asking for since Civ Five came out. So yeah, that was a, a long overdue and very welcome uh, new feature. I played a Civ 4 mod that did that, so it's been longer than just Civ 5. Yeah, I think it was probably easier to do that as a mod in Civ 4, because if I recall correctly, in Civ 4, the barbarians could create cities on their own, so I guess it's just a matter of changing who owns that city once it's built. Well, making it so that you could do diplomacy with a settled barbarian was the mod. Ah, okay. uh, Because Civilization did have, or Civ 4 did have minor the minor nations mechanic that was never 
outside of certain mods and certain scenarios. And uh, with modding, you could do things. That... But I want to know who the ten people are who voted for zombie zombie defense. <laughs> and the nine people for apocalypse. Like, it's fun every once in a while just to change things up, but it's definitely not an every game thing. I was going to say, I love the apocalypse mode, but if I don't want to play apocalypse mode, I don't want to play it. So it's like, always on? No. But these other ones, yeah. Well, and there's still a large subset of the player base that don't even like playing with disasters on and keep wanting to turn those off. So just turbocharging the disasters is uh, not what those players want, for sure. Cough, Dan Q, cough. (laughs) Every weekend. Well, which game has the disasters in it? Uh, I mean, it's annoying, but once you get used to having the disasters in there and having to deal with them, it's just, you know, it's another thing, a part of the gameplay. I do wish that... Oh, go ahead. As soon as in real life, you have to clean up after floods and hurricanes. I mean, I do wish that the floods didn't like completely destroy the farm tiles. They just pillaged them. If it, yeah, if it was only pillaging for stuff, that would be better. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think the way it works is that as the game progresses, they become more destructive. So at the beginning of the game, they only pillage, but then by the time you're in like the industrial era, and you know CO two starts getting pumped into the atmosphere, then they start destroying stuff. No, they destroy farms at least right away. Oh, do they? Oh, um, well. Yeah. Things on floodplains get washed away entirely. Um, Unless it's a district and then it just gets damaged and it takes forever. Yeah. Oh my gosh, could you imagine if it could just like remove a district? Uh, that would be awful or great, depending on whether or not you wanted that district after you conquered the city. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> you break that uh, other sieve's uh, dam and now they just don't have any districts at all. <laughs> Because uh, all their districts Oops. were built on rivers. Oops, That'd be really expensive to have to rebuild them. Yeah. Yeah, that would be but super trolly as well. List, on my list for Always On, I have Barbarian Clans, Heroes and Legends, Monopolies, and Secret Societies. Because I don't mind a little bit of um, heroic and secret stuff going on. Yeah, the Secret Societies can give you some interesting gameplay, give you let you mix up things you do with governments or like you get the vampires and you could do something a bit different. And heroes and legends sometimes feels like it's a little overpowered. The heroes are almost, I mean, I know they're heroes and legends, therefore they should be overpowered, but I I can get away with things. I shouldn't be able to get away with if I have a hero backing me up. I think I, I would be a lot more inclined to play secret societies if it didn't have the supernatural element or if there was like a sub option to disable the supernatural thing. And like it just be like the Illuminati and stuff like that. Freemasons, you know, like actual things that people say exist, but, you know, don't really ex- exist the way they say they do. Or they do exist and we just don't know it. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, whatever. But yeah, so something like little secret shady conspiratorial things going on, I could probably like deal with because that stuff like really does happen to a certain extent. Uh, I am not in any way advocating like moon landing hoaxes or anything like that. So don't take me the wrong way. No, uh, no, no. But yeah, like just the, the, the difference I, I, between there's a difference between conspiracy theory and secret society. Yeah, yeah, it, it's a there, there's a very large gap between Freemasons and uh, vampires. <laughs> secret well, cult, even, uh, secret cabal of Freemasons then, versus secret cabal of vampires. Big difference. Even then, um, secret societies do exist and have existed, and not all of them are actually nefarious. Most of them aren't. Most of them are just, hey, we're a group of people that got together once and we're just carrying on a local little tradition that we set up in college. So, yeah, fraternity or whatever. Yeah, that that kind of thing. A lot of them work as networking. If you know somebody who's in that society and you can get maybe a better job because of that, you know. Yeah. But oh, that yeah. kind of thing wouldn't work in a Civ game, so they have yeah. to do something interesting. Right, which is why I'm talking more of like the the grand scale conspiracy theory stuff like the Illuminati and Freemasons and and things like that. But even in Civ, it's like, oh, well, your secret society is on your your um, diplomacy page. Everybody knows what it is. Yeah. It's not really not secret. secret. Yeah, and then you always get those diplomacy messages. I see you have the mark of evil upon you. I've never played with dramatic agents. I kind of want to, and I kind of don't. 
I think I started like, I don't play... one game with Dramatic Ages, but I abandoned it, not because the Dramatic Ages game mode was, like, not good, but just because I, I just had a really crappy map circumstance and just did not want to keep playing the game. I don't play on super high difficulties. I play on Prince and King, so it's probably not super bad if I do play Dramatic Ages, but I've never tried it, so that's on my list of things to do. I hate zombie defense. I don't really care for Civ and Tech Shuffle. I've never tried it. It's on my list of things to try out someday. It's interesting. We've done. I had we had that last week in the multiplayer game. You know, so you can't because I find myself, particularly with multiplayer, following a very similar path every time, and this sort of throws a wrench into that. That your texts don't come exactly at the same time you'd expect, so you're forced to think a little harder and change your plans. So I liked it from that perspective. Yeah, the, the Tekken can, Civic Shovel would be probably my uh, third-ranked favorite game mode, for sure. I get the feeling that I would probably like it if I tried it. Yeah, and, and like, you know, just to be clear, they don't put any tech anywhere in the tech tree. Like, I, th- I think they're only shuffling ones within the eras. So you're not yeah. going to get, like, fission, right, <laughs> of uh, following <laughs> animal husbandry, you know? No, but the order you're so so used to seeing them in is going to be shuffled up a bit. Like sometimes some things will come a little earlier, and some basic things like animal husbandry might come a little later. And and honestly, I mean that's actually a game mode that is in the base game to a certain extent. Because once you get into the future era, you know there's those I think one or two eras where the tech and civic shuffle is just the the core game tech tree at that point. Yeah. So you've you've if you've gotten to the future era in any of your Civ Six games uh, since um, the uh, Gathering Storm pat, uh, expansion, you've played Tech and Civic Shovel uh, Shuffle. Yes, I uh, personally don't see much of a effect when you get to that point in the game, because at that point the only things you really research that you get from research are like the things for the space race victory and. The giant death giant robots. Death robot robot yeah. stuff. <laughs> there's no buildings. There's no tile improvements. I think there's, there's a really f- not there's a, lot a few up like there. I think there's a few like tourism modifiers in there. But well, yeah, yeah. but a modifier is different than something you build because a modifier yeah. you don't do anything with. It just is there, right? But if you extrapolate that backwards to the technologies in the game that are actually meaningful, then you know you've got something it going makes there. A big difference. Yeah, yeah it, it does. You know, when you have apprenticeship showing up at the end of the medieval era instead of at the beginning of the medieval era. And, you know, it has like maybe several tech prerequisites. So uh, you're getting your industrial hubs considerably later than you otherwise would be. That's a big change. And you've started a game as Rome and you're able to go to bronze working to iron working really fast. Suddenly you have legions and everybody else barely has archers. Yeah, or alternatively differently for everybody or is it? No, I think everybody shares the same tech tree. Uh, okay. So I'm I'm pretty that would be sure. Kind of important. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure that's the way that it works, but I don't know 100% because I only played that mode like once or twice. And then for Apocalypse, I do like Apocalypse, but I don't want to play it all the time. We don't mind Anybody dealing else with... have a per- Go ahead. Cuz I don't mind dealing with the disasters some of the time, but disasters all the time every game would be just like, "Oh my god, stop." Well, yeah, level four disasters are just nasty. <laughs> I mean, it is kind of fun when you, you have one of those, you've had one of those weeks, one of those days, and you just want to go in there and destroy everything. Well, I'm going to bring oh, on yeah. the Oh, yeah, I, I have not yet done it, but I want to have the radio- meteors rain down. Yes, get the meteors, bring it down, end the world. I think I would also like the Monopolies and Corporations a little bit more if it had a little bit more substance to it. Like I kind of feel like it. What there needs to be like a a global market or something to be selling your mm. your goods on, and like they, the the fact that they just kind of become great works. I mean, I guess you could sell great works, so you can you can yeah, sell you the can the products that. In, in that regard. But I I kind of feel like there should have been like a separate UI or something for like you know maybe like auctioning off your your stuff to the other sieves and you know selling them to the highest bidder or something like that might have been pretty cool. Yeah, I, I think feel I brought, like. Go ahead. I, was, I think I think I brought it up when the expansion first came out. We were talking about that and the monopolies thing, and 
the endless games have that where because they have both the strategic and luck the strategic and luxury and other resources and you can sell and buy them on an open market once you research a certain technology yeah so in Civ, if i've got a monopoly say on cotton it would be nice if i could sell that in a different i'm I guess maybe once you just sell it through the diplomacy thing, but I would rather you were doing an open market. Anybody can buy it. It doesn't have to be a specific AI or something. Yeah, I do like that the monopolies and corporations does give you that little bit extra incentive to like colonize near that extra copy of a resource mm-hmm. that you already have. Right. I, I like I generally like mechanics in, in the civilization games that encourage you to, you know, settle more cities and expand and, you know, acquire more resources, even if they are duplicates of the resources you already have. So that's good, but it's just, it's not a substantive enough change to the way that you play the game that a lot of it just, to me, kind of feels like incidental. Like, I'm not playing to the monopolies. It's just kind of like, oh, if I can, I'll go do it, because I have this extra little incentive. But it's it's rarely ever, like, the focus of my strategy. If that makes sense. If I had to say anything about the monopoly corporations, it would be that the reason that they feel that way is because the diplomacy system in general is so haphazard. It's yeah. not very well fleshed out, and it's hard to use. And It has been that way in Civ since at least Civ Five, and compared to other games in, and in the genre, it just feels like it exists entirely to transactionally handle trading. And we talked about this a while back with um, Soren Johnson, I think, when he talked about the transactional nature of diplomacy that Civ Four introduced. He was talking about how he thinks that was one of the biggest mistakes he ever made, was introducing that idea. Because you never do anything in Civ diplomacy that is not based on, I want this, so I give you this. Yeah, the closest thing I could think of would maybe be the Vassal system in Civ Four, where someone might actually come to you and be like, hey, you're bigger and more powerful than we are, will you protect us? Yeah, but that's a trap, because they're always at war with somebody. Yeah, but it, it is something that it, it, it at least felt like it was more of a diplomatic action than just a transaction, a resource, yeah. you know, exchange. Civ Four had had a better diplomacy system than either five or six has had and it's frustrating because both five and six had interesting diplomatic ideas that were just never fleshed out or which in some cases were actually removed uh i actually personally liked the pact of secrecy idea it wasn't (laughs) implemented particularly well uh but uh i think instead of cutting it they should have like found a way to make it work better i think they should have made it do something at all well, I, I think with the introduction of spies in the Gods and Kings expansion, like the Pact of Secrecy would have been would have just worked so much better because now you have the opportunity for like your spies to discover that the other civs are conspiring against you. And, you know, like things like that, where now it's a more active, more assertive part of the game and not just like this thing that, you know, nobody ever enforces. I think um, Beyond Earth kind of did some of that. Where they added in diplomatic favors, which was interesting, but you know, there were some things in in uh, Beyond Earth that advanced the 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 brain has just lost, like exe crashed. Anastasia exe has crashed. Please wait. Uh oh, did Canis get a Windows update? <laughs> uh-uh. No, I got I got a COVID update. Um, uh-huh. Windows, no, darn it. Beyond Earth had the the favor and respect system, which was really helpful for determining dipl- diplomacy because it showed you what you, where you stood in the AI's eyes. Yeah, and that was an interest. That was a really good system. I wish they had kept. Well, it's been a, a you know obviously a long time since I've played uh, Beyond Earth, but if if I remember correctly, the favor system in Beyond Earth it was very similar to the diplomatic favor system that was put in uh, Civ Six. So I, I think that was you know very heavily inspired by Beyond Earth. Not really. It was a favor. Uh, a diplomatic favor in Beyond Earth was like a piece of gold. 
it wasn't something that you accumulated over time. It was something that you gave or gave uh, you traded to somebody. So it was like, I, I will give you 100 favors if you give me a thousand gold or something yeah. like that. Well, and, and like I said, like that's in Civ Six, but yeah, they added that extra thing where you just accumulate it passively as well. Well, but you never used it for anything in Beyond Earth. You, the only thing you used it for was to trade back to the person who had it with. Like, if I had 50 diplomatic favor with somebody, I could just say, here, take this back, and again, give me something for it. That was all you could do with it. Yeah, so it, it actually, in Beyond Earth, it was more of a favor than, a, in, in Civ Six. it's treated more of a, as a currency. Yeah, it's not a currency in Civ Five and Beyond Earth. Yeah, it's like Canis gives me a favor, and then I trade that favor to Mackie, like... That kind of makes no sense. <laughs> not that's not how it works either, because you can't trade favors with somebody else to somebody else. No, I mean in Civ Six, that's the way the diplomatic favor kind of works. Is you, you can oh, just buy yeah, and sell yeah, favor yeah, points. A, yeah, we have the generic diplomatic favor currency instead of a special only this person currency. Yeah, and in Civ Six, it's it's more of like a I don't know, like a political it's influence kind of thing than specifically favors. Yeah. It's global influence rather than in, than um, personalized. Yeah, and honestly, I feel like they, they just mislabeled that. It, it should be called diplomatic influence and not diplomatic favor, because like we just established, there's nothing, there's no favor about it. But I think they already used the word influence for the points that you get towards city-state envoys, so. I don't know exactly. I guess they didn't want to confuse people with the word influence meaning two different things. Even though, honestly, how many people know <laughs> that uh, the points you get towards city-state envoys is called influence? I didn't know it. I just know it's points and I get envoys and stuff. Yeah, I think that's the way most people think about it. Yeah, and, and I, I also really did like the, the fear and respect system in Beyond Earth. I thought that was a really good idea, and I was really disappointed and surprised that that did not carry over more into Civ Six. I also like the Spoil of War system. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, that, that thing that that we didn't have that much about, we didn't ever heard of again, that's really sad because it was really cool. I just killed this thing. Why don't I take all their resources instead of just wiping them off the face of the Earth? Or in this case, planet. You, yeah, you're telling me I sacked this city and there's nothing in here? No, not at all? Are you kidding? They burned down the science lab before we got in there. Uh-huh, sure. Okay, so moving on to actual game strategy, because this is, after all, supposed to be a podcast focused on game strategy. Uh, we're going to start, uh, go back to some of the New Frontier civs and talk a little bit more in depth about the, uh, strategies for playing them. Uh, I think we last did that a couple episodes ago when we talked about, uh, what was it, Babylon? I forget. I, I think it was, uh, Lady Six Guy. Oh, yes, yes, it was Maya, right. So now we're going on to the, uh, I think this was the other civilization that was in that same pack, right? Uh, no. Oh, no, they Ethiopia were in their... Ethiopia standalone. They were in their own pack, that's right. So, uh, Ethiopia. And I think we already talked about Ethiopia in a previous episode a little bit, uh, but not in, like, super high detail. So, you know, I had written a strategy guide on my, uh, blog at megabearsfan.net, uh, all the way back in... When the heck was this? Uh, August. Oh my goodness, the time flies. This is almost a year old. <laughs> yeah, but it hasn't changed much. Yeah, true. Uh, I think there have been a couple of small updates to Ethiopia over the patches, so this guide might be a little bit out of date at this point. I forget specifically what has been changed about Ethiopia. We'll find out, because when we read it, we'll know whether that's not right or not. Right. So, uh, for those who don't remember, uh, Ethiopia's civilization bonus is that their international trade routes grant bonus faith per resource at the origin city, and improved resources provide faith for each copy the city owns. 
uh, and they can also purchase archaeological museums and archaeologists with faith instead of having to uh, purchase them with gold, or in the case of archaeologists, I think all the other civs can only hard build them with production. I don't think anyone else can buy yeah. archaeologists at no, all. You can, you can buy them. The The hard build restriction was Civ 5 only. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Ethiopia is all about getting faith from resources. You want to settle your cities near clusters of resources so that you get lots of faith from them for improving them, and then also get even more faith from sending trade routes from that city. If I remember correctly, the bonus faith is applied directly to the city. It is not yield on the tile which means you do not even have to have the population to work all of the resources in order to get those large sums of faith. Uh, as long as they're improved and they're within the city's borders, you get the faith. Pretty and I effective. Think, I think that is still the case. I don't think that has been changed. So, uh, yeah, Ethiopia gets lots and lots of faith, and at the end of the game, you can use them towards building museums and archaeologists. So uh, there's a very strong uh, tourism victory flavor there. So if you can't win the religion victory, Ethiopia is very easy to pivot to a tourism victory. Build Cristo Redentor. Yes, definitely. Lots of wonders are very good for Ethiopia. Well, that that's the one that that and eliminates the half the half influence of religious artifacts. Yeah, and religious artifacts are also going to be very powerful for Ethiopia because they're going to give you both faith and tourism. I think they also give culture too, right? Or is it just faith and tourism? I don't know. I forget. And then the leader of Ethiopia, of course, is uh, Menelik II who has the Council of Ministers ability, which gives him science and culture equal to 15% of the faith generated in cities that are founded on hills. In addition, units receive plus four combat strength on hills, which is a you know always a pretty decent buff. Four is a moderate buff for units. Uh, so again, the name of the game for Ethiopia is not just settling near clusters of resources, but also trying to settle on hills. Uh, if possible... You know, if you have to move that city one space over to get onto that hill, it is probably worth it, especially if that city has a lot of uh, science and culture that it's going to be generating. Like if you're next to a wonder, a natural wonder or something that gives science or uh, culture, you know, something like the what, like the Galapagos or the Great Barrier Reef or something like that, uh, you know, try to look for a hill to settle on that still puts you in range of that. And then maybe also further buff that with the uh, governor who boosts uh, science and culture generation in the city. And then their unique improvement, of course, is the rock-hewn church, which must be built on a hill or on volcanic soil, but it cannot be built next to another rock-hewn church. I think one of the um, updates that came in the patches was that it cannot be pillaged or destroyed by volcanic eruptions, or maybe even any disasters at all. So I think that is true. Yeah, so when you uh when you build them next to a volcano, you don't have to worry about them getting blown up two turns later. Which is a, a very nice bit of insurance and peace of mind to have. I will quickly look that up. And uh while Canis is looking that up, the effect of the Rockune Church is that it generates a faith and an appeal, and then additional faith for each adjacent hill or mountain. And then, of course, that uh, faith is converted into tourism after researching flight. Can only be pillaged, never destroyed by natural disaster. Okay, and of course, repairing a pillage improvement does not cost a charge. So as long as you keep some, you know, builders with at least one charge sitting around, or military engineer for that matter, uh, it's pretty trivially easy to, you know, repair improvements. And these things, by the way, can generate quite a bit of faith if you put them uh, in a uh, in a good uh, position. Uh, they can be very beastly. And then Ethiopia's unique unit is the Oromo Cavalry, which is a, well, was at the time a coarser replacement. I think Patches might have added some units to this line, so I don't know if it's still a coarser or if it's a different unit now. I think it's still the Courser. 
Oromo is a unique light cavalry unit. Right. Replaces the Courser. Okay, that did not change. Good. Uh, and its bonus is that uh, it ignores zone of control like all other light cavalry unit, and it gets one additional sight, and it does not have a movement penalty from moving into hills, which, uh, of course, works very nicely with that plus four combat strength that all of Ethiopia's, or uh, all of Menelik's units get for fighting on hills. So when your enemy retreats onto hills, ha ha ha, joke's on them. He also has two extra combat strength. Yes, compared to the Courser. So if you're fighting on hills, that becomes a total of plus six for uh, fighting on the hill. And what is the, f- the bonus for defending on a hill? It's a, it's a percentage question. bonus, right? Or is it a flat bonus? I forget. I want to say it's a 25% combat strength bonus. So I'm... I'm what I'm getting at is I'm wondering whether or not that plus six is enough to overwhelm most units' defensive bonuses that they would get for being on a hill. Hey, look that up, too. I can do that. Attacking. This is a very large, complicated. Okay, yeah, don't worry about it. Article. Uh, yes. Keep going, I'll tell you if I find it. Okay, sure. Uh, so, again, uh, settling on and near hills and lots of resources is the way to go with Ethiopia. You will generate tons and tons of faith. In my experience, I don't think any other sieve comes close to generating as much as much uh, faith as Ethiopia has the potential to generate. Like, it is just absolutely absurd how much faith you have. And uh, that, of course, is going to be very good for a religious victory, you know, because you can build lots and lots of religious units. You can buy the religious uh, belief buildings, worship buildings. Uh, But it also means that if you take, uh, uh, for example, building the um, government plaza building, I forget which one it is, the one that lets you build uh, land units with faith. Uh, that you you can also leverage that faith to build a huge and powerful military. So you can pivot from faith to multiple victory types very easily with Ethiopia. Hills give plus three defense. Oh yeah, so yeah, the the plus six that you would get from the bonus plus two that the um, courser already has, and then the additional four from fighting on a hill is double what the defender gets for trying to camp on it. Let's see. So Ethiopia, since you have a unique improvement, just like any other sieve that has a unique improvement, you're going to want to build lots and lots and lots of builders. So uh, go for early policies like Ilkum and Serfdom in order to build builders more quickly and then give them more charges once they are built. Uh, You'll probably want to put Liang the Surveyor Governor in one of your cities and then use that city as your primary builder farm to get extra charges uh, out of those builders. And of course, if you are able to, the Pyramids World Wonder will give all of your builders one extra charge and I think also gives you one or two free builders. Uh, I think that was to five. Maybe. I think it still gives one free builder. Uh, and then the Ancestral Hall, uh, Government Plaza building will also give you a free builder whenever you found a new city, which, uh, you know, can also come in handy, especially if you are building new cities while you have the serfdom policy enacted. And then all those builders that you're getting for free anyway, start with two extra charges. So build lots and lots of builders, improve those resources and build lots and lots of rock hewn churches and get lots and lots of faith. And it is one free builder with the pyramids in addition to the extra build charge. Yeah, that's what I thought. I couldn't remember if it was one or two. Only one. Let's see. Uh, you'll probably also want to look very closely at the Jesuit education uh, religious belief, which allows you to purchase campus and theater buildings with faith. So you can buy your campus. Well, not the campus district, but you can you know get your amphitheater uh, up and running, and then also use your ability to buy those uh, museums and archaeologists, all with faith, and then spend your production on other stuff like units or other infrastructure. 
And then, of course, there's the Valletta city-state, which I think is still in the game and still grants the uh, suzerain bonus that it allows you to purchase city center buildings and walls with faith. So anything that lets you build something with faith, you should definitely go for with Ethiopia because, like I said, you will just have so much faith that you you probably won't know what to do with all of it. You'll still be able to build crap tons of religious units, missionaries and apostles, and probably still have faith left over to be buying other units and buildings. And then, of course, any wonders that give religious or faith bonuses are probably also going to be good. And then depending on which victory you decide to pivot to, if you can't get that religious victory, uh, that'll influence what other wonders you'll want to go for later in the game. Either go for tourist wonders or go for military wonders. And since you're going to probably be spending a lot of your faith on mostly buying archaeological museums and archaeologists, you probably don't need to put too much effort into going for great artists. Uh, you'll probably still want some writers and musicians, so you're going to get great artists anyway, but you're probably not going to have much in the way of art museums, because you're probably going to spend all your uh, faith on creating archaeological museums instead. So... If you get an artist, cool. Uh, you know, you can at least put that in the put their great work in the palace or something. Maybe build one or two art museums uh, here and there just to have them. Or alternatively, just sell them for something else. Sell them to another sieve for like a relic or something. Uh, trade them because you'll probably have lots of holy sites as well with lots of temples and lots of space for uh, relics, which you may or may not be able to fill depending on how how you explored the map and whether or not your martyr apostles are dying in theologic combat. Any other good tips or advice for playing as Ethiopia? I think you've covered most of it. I was going to say, I don't think I've played Ethiopia enough to really feel like I can give advice. Okay. Well, as always, whenever I write my strategy guides, I also like to put... Uh, in a little section at the end about playing against that civilization and leader as well. Uh, so Ethiopia's leader, Menelik, has the agenda Ethiopian Highlands, in which he likes to build his cities on and around hills whenever possible, and he likes other civilizations that avoid settling in hills. Uh, and he will dislike you if you build on his precious hills. So this is one of the sieves where it's not too hard to uh, satisfy that agenda. Uh, generally, setting on a plains hill whenever possible is pretty uh, good strategy for any civilization in the game because that gives you two food, two production instead of uh, two one on all other tiles. And if there's a resource on that uh, hill's plain as well, then you know even better because you get that yield too. So if you're going for that, you're probably going to piss off uh, Menelik, and he's not going to like you too much. But either way, you should definitely expect to have to fight off uh, missionaries and apostles coming from this guy, uh, whether he likes you or not. So be prepared with your own faith, or be prepared to go to war with him and... Uh, what's it called when you kill a religious unit with a military unit condemn mm -hmm. yeah so be prepared to either have to fight him off with your own religious units or condemn them by going to war because otherwise uh if, especially if you're his immediate neighbor uh, early in the game uh he is gonna have a very easy time just absolutely overwhelming you with missionaries and apostles and it's also going to be very difficult to keep up with him uh in terms of producing your own missionaries and apostles. So if you do see him as your immediate neighbor right at the start of the game, and you were planning on going for a religious playstyle, you might want to second think that. You might want to just let him convert your cities, because you're probably just going to dump so many resources and effort into trying to fight his religion off that you're not going to be able to do other things, and you're just going to fall behind in other aspects of the game. But you, you know, just want to be careful that you don't let him walk all over you and then proceed to an easy religious victory. And if you can't fight him off with faith and you don't want him to convert your cities, then you're just going to have to fight him. Uh, go to war very early on. Use a Casus Belli if you can. 
Uh, but of course, the earlier you go to war, the less punitive the uh, grievance penalties are. So if you're fighting him in the ancient or classical era, it won't be as big a deal to have a Cassus Belli. Yeah, he's not like an, he's not like some of the other says you want to prioritize that if you see them, you should destroy them now while you can. But if you have role, if you have chosen to try and play a religious game with somebody, you happen to do random and get a religious basive, he probably does become a priority because otherwise you're going to have too much competition. Right. Now, one thing that you could do if you are going for a religious playstyle is you could declare war on him and then instead of capturing his cities, pillage all of his stuff, particularly those rock-hewn churches, because you're going to get lots and lots of chunk faith from them. So what you can do is you can then spend that faith to buy your own missionaries and apostles while he is currently not able to generate as much faith. And if you can convert his cities real quick during that war and then make peace and let him rebuild, then suddenly all his faith bonuses kind of become your faith bonuses because he's going to be spending all that faith on religious units and then spreading your religion. So that's another way to approach dealing with uh, Menelik of Ethiopia. I like this approach. That sounds like a fun approach, actually. Yes, I'm, I'm sure that is probably a Phil-approved approach <laughs> as well. Yes, make his religion your religion. Then well, you don't have any problems. Yeah, if I have to play religiously, I guess that's how I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think that about covers all of the uh, major points that I have for Ethiopia. So unless either of the two of you have any other tips or suggestions. Nothing from me. Nope. I also did post a link to this guide in the Civ Fanatics thread, and there are some lengthy responses with additional tips and tricks, including some that specifically address tips for playing with some of the uh, special game modes. Uh, there's a user, uh, Tetley, with the fifth post, who t is talking about uh, playing with secret societies and some of uh, their impressions with how Ethiopia works there. So you can also check out the Syphonatic forums for uh, more information about that sort of thing. Because I, when I write these guides, I typically don't play with the alternate game modes because uh game's already complicated enough and it already takes long enough getting these guides out that uh, having to play multiple games with multiple combinations of game modes is just not something that I can practically do and still have a life. <laughs> there is life outside of Civ. I, I know that seems sounds strange, but... Now, if Firaxis wants to pay me a salary to write Civilization Strategy Guides so that I can quit my job and do it full-time, uh, then well, maybe I could do that. Hint, oh, hint, maybe. wink, wink, nudge, nudge. 2K, Firaxis, if you're listening. Uh, I also posted threads on the 2K forums and on the Steam forums, uh, although those are much less active than the Civ Fanatic forums, but there might also be some uh, good replies on those as well. And the links to all of those are at the bottom of the guide. So you can find the links there. Wait a minute, didn't I do the intro too? Oh well, this has been episode 384 of Polycast. I have been Canis Albinus and I have been with, uh, Mac Lua. He was laughing because, yeah, no, I looked at the notes and went, wait a minute, how's he doing it twice? Okay. I didn't realize that, and uh, Mega Bears fan. And this concludes my presentation on Ethiopia. <laughs> it was a good one. It was. Especially for not having looked at that guide in almost a year. <laughs> Civilization 3, 4, 5, Six sound clips, copyright take two rack. Copyright the polycast, polycast.net.